Hi, Tim. Hi, Terry. Well, nice good evening. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us tonight. And, and, and so nice to see you again after so many years. Just uh, I, I took your course, uh, Stat 270 at SFU, I think 2000 uh, spring, my second semester. I, I don't you, you probably don't remember you, but I, I do. I do remember your course. And, and, and obviously, I, I, you know, I got a lot out of it. So I'm very happy to be speaking with you today and, and, and catching up with you. I was a first year student in 2000. What stage of your career were you at at that time? Okay, 2000. Uh, I've been around for a long time. I, I did my PhD in 86, in uh, August of 86. And in August of 86, I started at SFU and I've been there ever since. So uh, that would have been 14 years later. I think I was a new full professor at that time. In, in Canada, we have uh, assistant professor, associate professor, and uh, full, full professor. So I had made it to full professor and uh, 270 was one of my uh, favorite courses because it's, it's really tight. It's an introduction to probability and statistics. The students are good. And um, I even wrote a book for, for the course. Oh, you guys are using, so when I was there, I don't think you, got, you had a lot of notes, but I don't think you had the book yet. Well, we, uh, we had a book and uh, it was uh, the book by DeVore. And at the time it was uh, $286. And I, I felt some sympathy for the students. So uh, I took my course notes and uh, created a book. My, my daughter did the uh, art design for the cover and uh, we, we sell it for $25. Okay. So. <laughs> I, I, I bought a used copy of, I think I, I fourth edition. It was sort of maroon color. It was it was eighty dollars. Yeah. I bought used copy. I have a copy sitting here from when I taught a version of Stat two seventy at University of Victoria edition five. Yeah. So you mentioned you got your PhD. Where did you do your PhD? My PhD was um, at uh, University of Toronto. Before that, I uh, I was at University of Waterloo, uh, Kitchener Waterloo, our twin cities. Kitchener is my hometown. So I was uh, born, raised, uh, trained, and I've I've done all my. Uh, my career has been in Canada. So I started out at University of Waterloo, where, where I did a Bachelor of Mathematics. Waterloo is, uh, I think, one of the very few uh, universities in the, rural, in the world that has, has a faculty of mathematics. And then I went to uh, Toronto for MSc and PhD studies, and I worked under Mike Evans. Mike was uh, very young at the time. I was his first student, and uh, we worked on computational pro problems, uh, some inference uh, we eventually wrote a book together, an Oxford University Press uh, book called uh, Approximation of Integrals. It has a longer title than that. Uh, so yeah, I, I was there uh, from 83 to 86. I, I did those uh, graduate degrees quickly and then, then came out to SFU. Also, the SFU was your, first, was, your, was, was your first real job and that was the tenure track job. Yeah. So that was interesting because... Uh, you know, at the time, uh, I was teaching courses that, that I hadn't even taken myself. Uh, so I, I was uh, teaching and learning at the same time. And, uh, you know, we were all young once. I, I was very, very young back then. So you mentioned you did you did PhD in, in computational statistics. So this is like, um, so I'm not a real statistician, right? So did you just like MCMC, I guess? Yeah, so my, my careers probably had uh, two uh, main threads. I had uh, probably the first thread was, was Bayes. And then the second uh, thread is the uh, sports analytics. And, and maybe that's the thing that I've done that is a little unusual. I was at Toronto from, uh, as I said, 83 to 86. And this was a period when uh, Bayes was gaining attention uh, because uh, 
we now had access to personal computing. And also there was development of algorithms that allowed us to do uh, Bayesian statistics in particular. Uh, well, um, you know, things like Gibbs sampling and uh -huh. uh, Metropolis algorithm. It was a very, very good time. And I, to be in that area, I worked on some uh, theory. I, I worked on applications. There were lots of applications where you know, something was a little bit difficult in a classical uh, sense, but all of a sudden, if you switch things around, uh, a Bayesian analysis gave you uh, immediate results. And uh, so it was, it was a very good period. Then later on, you know, I've always had this uh, passion for sports, participation in sports. And while at SFU, I, I had uh, lots of master's students who did projects at the end of their uh, degree, and I would get them involved in sports projects. So this was this was my hobby, and I would say probably around uh, 2005, um, sports became my primary uh, research focus, and I've I've been writing sports papers ever ever since. So I saw when I was just before I graduated. You know, I used to be such a keen student. I would check all professors' websites and stuff like this. And I, I, I saw on your webpage that you had a paper that said, and I tried to read it at the time. I wasn't, I, I didn't, I don't think I knew enough maths to read it, that the goalie should be pulled out way before. So, so just for other people listening, so in hockey, you know, we, we know this, you can pull the goalie out because the goal, goalie is not that great a scorer. And at some point, if you're really behind, you, you pull the goalie out for an attacker, uh, for the extra attacker, we, we say. And lots of times this is done at uh, uh, two minutes, right? So if I'm losing 3-1, you know, at 18 minutes, third period, I guess I might pull my something that I, I might pull my goalie. And then you you did analysis that said you should pull the goalie at four minutes, right? Is, is this right? Yeah, I think that's that's about right. But actually, the tradition uh, had been to pull your goalie with with less than a minute to go. Well, less than so, a minute, even. Oh. Uh, yeah, uh, and you know, we we uh, received a lot of attention for that paper. And I think the reason is because it's it's counterintuitive when you pull your goalie and you have an empty net, it's quite likely that the other team will score on you. But that kind of misses the point because uh, you're going to lose the game anyway. So you might as well take a chance with an extra attacker and uh, score the goal. And uh, this was this was picked up by uh, Patrick Waugh in particular. He was coach of the uh, Colorado Avalanche and he did it a few times and had a lot of success and he was in the news. Also, yeah, Patrick Waugh good. actually used this. I, uh, we, we sent him our paper uh, when he was uh, still in the Quebec uh, Major Junior Hockey League as a coach. So I don't know if he ever read it, but he, he did start pulling his goalie much earlier than what had been done in the past. And so the, if, you, if you look at the uh, times now, the average times when, when teams will pull their goalie when they're trailing by one goal, um, I think they'll, they, they'll do it, uh, you know, with a, maybe two minutes, two and a half minutes left. And I think our optimal time in the paper was, uh, was three minutes. So these are the kinds of problems I like. I like, I like sports analytics problems where uh, the uh, solution, the advice uh, differs from uh, tradition. I, th I think that's really uh, a lot of fun when, when, when you find a result like that. So those are, those are the problems that, that attract me. And I, you know, I, I watch sport a lot on, on television and I see things and I kind of ask myself, uh, is that right? And uh, you know, sometimes we, we investigate these uh, with uh, data and uh, statistical methodology. So, so I'm quite jealous then. So Patrick, you sent Patrick Wall your paper. 
And then he actually followed your advice. And, and just, just, just for context, guys got six Stanley Cups or something like this, right? Like, yeah. Okay. So, so I don't want to say he followed our advice. I can tell you that we sent him the paper. I don't know if he read, read it, but he did start pulling uh, the goalie uh, much earlier than, uh, than other coaches. But this is a big deal, right? Because, because he, he's a legendary goalie himself, right? Like yeah, he, with, he won the Vezina trophy. Uh, he, he, uh, he was an outstanding goalie for the Montreal Canadians. And then he had this coaching career. Yeah. So from what I understood was like, he wouldn't be able to be chosen for team Canada because this guy has so much ego that he could not get replaced at some point. Right. And this is what happens in team Canada, right? The, the goalie, the top goalie always gets replaced, right? This is usually what happens because it's, you know, all these guys are so, so high up there. This is, you know, I got to bring up this talk. I saw you give a talk in Victoria. Was he one of your former students, uh, Min? I didn't supervise Min, Min Tao, but he uh, he was a graduate student at the time I was there. And I, I remember I had uh, Min in a class with, it was a class of three students. So those those were the good old days when you could run a class that was really, really small. They they wouldn't let us do that anymore. So he, he invited you to talk. And then obviously I, I knew nothing about statistics. And he goes, okay, look, Tim is going to give a really general audience talk. And obviously this is because it's the math department, right? Because, you know, math people need to be blown away by things they don't understand, right? Like, this is at my request that he's going to give this talk. And that was, that was one of the best talks I saw when I was a close up Victoria. And you, you, you held up something about hockey. So you, you, you ran a gambling ring or something like this, right? You had these odds in very calm ways. And notice it does not add up to one or something like this, right? And what was the team you were cheering for, right? I guess you were cheering for... Well, when I, when I was a kid, I always uh, cheered for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, that was the... Toronto was only... Uh, an hour and a half drive from, oh. from Kitchener Waterloo. Gambling and, and sports are, are intertwined, especially in, in the UK. Gambling is a, a bit of a taboo uh, subject in Canada, or at least it was. I remember when I was uh, a child, uh, the only thing you could gamble on was uh, maybe bingo. But now you can gamble on on everything. Uh, and I'm, I'm really hesitant to say much about gambling because I, I'm very aware that, you know, there's gambling addictions and, and uh, bookmakers exist because they make money and therefore most people end up losing. But it's, it's interesting probabilistically. Um, you know, now there's in-game betting, you know, correlations come into play. These are uh, statistical ideas. And I can tell you that one of my students uh, has made uh, millions of dollars gambling. And I've had other students who've made uh, you know, on the order of $50,000 gambling. So I, I talk to them, but I'm, I'm not really the gambler myself. I'm, I'm interested, but I, I don't really gamble much. <laughs> I obviously didn't pay enough attention in, in that 270. Like I really missed out on this. Millions of <laughs> So what happens in sports gambling, especially if you're doing internet gambling, is that when there's a weakness in the system, the, the sports books identify it and then remove the weakness. So what my uh, former student did where he made a lot of money and he's still making money, but in different ways. But at the time, what he did was he would uh, look at different sports books and uh, identify arbitrage opportunities. So if there's a team A and a team B, and he, he happened to find odds where you bet $100 on team A, and if you win, if they win, you win $105. And then at the other internet, if you bet $100 on team B and they win, you win $105. So that means you can't lose if you make $100 bets on each, on each side. You're going to win five. Um, you're going to win uh, $5. But you know he would make bigger bets than $105, and he would do this 
every day, day after day. Now the uh, sports books are communicating with one another. There's uh, a service called Don Best. And when people come in and make large bets, and which adjust the odds, all the sports books adjust their odds accordingly. So these opportunities of, of arbitrage are less frequent than they, they used to be. So that's one way he made money. He, he made money. Um, just, just to Bob, I'm surprised this existed, actually. You, you figured they'd be smarter than that. Well, this was, this was in the early days, right? <laughs> so the, the sports books that didn't have sharp lines, they went out of business. Uh, maybe they took your money because they were all offshore sports books. But you know, there's there's other there's other systems that people use. Thing is, uh, it's it's very hard to beat the sports books, and and the lines are the lines are very sharp for most uh, major sports. And and you need to sort of have inside knowledge. You, you need to know if LeBron James has a cold, and maybe he's not going to be playing so well tonight. And we we don't know these things, so I don't actually recommend it to anyone. But it is it's got like for for an introductory uh, course. There's lots of probabilistic concepts. And yeah, I, I teach some of these things in, in some of my sports analytics courses. You know, so I, I grew up in Vancouver at Hastings Renfrew. So this is right next to the Peony and there was a racetrack there. My, my father would bring me to the racetrack. So I learned a little bit about live odds and this kind of stuff. Yeah. And sometimes I had some vision of what I thought were the, the platonic odds. So the race schedule and then the morning line odds, I didn't use the word platonic, but I thought those are the real odds somehow. And then as people bet, the odds would change, of course. And then I thought, well, that's just because the track has to make money, but these are the real actual odds somehow. I don't know where they would get those from. Sometimes, you know, a horse would be on the manual and it'd be like, you know, rarely ever would be more than 20 to one, right? Because they, they weight the horses so that the races are exciting, right? They wouldn't put a 20 to one horse next to one that was one to one or whatever. So you would see a 21 to one horse sometimes. And then sometimes on the betting, it would go to 99 to one. No, no one was betting on it. Now, maybe these guys knew better. The horse was sick or something like this. But I always kind of believed that, well, they just this was almost arbitrage as far as I was concerned, because there's no way this, this six horse is running. How can this horse be 99 to one? It was 17 to one in the manual. 20 minutes after the horses walked around, they run the horses around and then people look at them and inspect them and make other superstitious judgments. I don't see how a horse can go from 20 to one to 99 to one, but okay. I was a, I was a kid. So I never would bet my $2 on the 99 to one. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah. So uh, racetrack betting is, is a little bit different. The way it works is everybody bets. And then the racetrack uh, returns 80% of the pot to the winners. So you can see that the racetrack never loses. When you bet on a, a sporting event like cricket match or uh, a football game, whatever law, odds you lock in are the odds that you're going to be paid at. So if there's lots of us betting on a certain team, it's actually possible for the sports book to lose. Oh, really? So the racetrack will never lose, but the sports book with these other sports can lose. Oh, so they don't fluctuate because this, this is why I thought happens. They do fluctuate. But once you've made your bet on a soccer game, a football game, uh, you get the odds that you bet at. Okay. And what happens in the horse races is that the big bettors bet, they tend to bet at the last minute. Yeah, because they don't want to give themselves away, right? Yeah. And, be, and then there's there's other people who, who believe that these are people with knowledge, so they try to follow what they're doing. There's a lot of psychology in there, but I, I think winning at the racetrack, again, extremely difficult. And in fact, the fact that they they only pay out 80% of the uh, pot, you know, really, really makes it difficult. So I'd say stay away from the, the racetrack. Yeah. 
UCL Minds brings together the knowledge, insights and ideas of our community through a wide range of events and activities that are open to everyone.